you have a Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, also, uh, if you go ahead and look at your handout there, isn't that a cool picture? I think that's one of the coolest pictures we ever had, and uh, it really says it all. I'm impressed with the picture. Can you tell? Uh, someone said, how many of you remember the group Petra many, many, many years ago? They're like, this looks like an album cover. I mean, yeah. anyway, some of you are looking at me like, Petra, thought it was a place. It is a place also, but anyway, Ephesians chapter 5. We're beginning a new sermon series called This Means War. And uh, I want to open the series, first of all, by doing a Bible study. So we're probably in the county's biggest Bible study this morning right here together. Now, the reason I need to do that is kind of set us up for the next four weeks to kind of help you to understand the big picture of what's going on behind the scenes. Now, some of you, when you look at the, uh, the outline this morning, you're like, wow, is that for the whole month? No, that's just for today. And uh, we'll get through it, okay? But uh, I'll probably have to push through, but it'll be something I hope will be very informative. Now, the subject matter we're looking at today, uh, if you've never studied spiritual warfare, it's probably going to freak you out just a little bit, okay? Uh, but it is very interesting that the Bible speaks a lot about these battles that go on behind the scenes of our lives. There's a whole world that's going on beyond what we can touch, what we can see, what we can smell, there's just a whole different battle that's going on beyond all that. And this morning, I'm not uh, giving this message or this Bible study to kind of freak you out about it. Uh, it's one of those things where we just need to be aware of what's going on. Uh, and when we are aware of what's going on, then we can definitely acknowledge and work through what is actually going on around us and in us and through us. So today, the, the, the title of the message is The Battle Against the Enemy. Look at the introduction there on your outline. Someone has said the Christian life is not a playground, but a battleground. We as followers of Jesus are under attack on three fronts. The adversary, which is the enemy himself, the world, and also our flesh. Now, the thing that we probably need to take note of is that when it comes to the enemy, the adversary, he is working on the things behind the scenes when it does come to our world. And we'll study and show you that uh, later, either today or in the weeks to come. But the other part of it is when it comes to our flesh, the core of many of those things where sin comes from, he is the one who attempts to deceive that area. He's the one that attempts to manipulate that area. So if you were to say, okay, then what, what's the big deal? Well, the enemy's really behind it all. And we're going to prove that to you over these next several weeks. Now, to be successful in this battle for our soul, we must do three things. Analyze our enemy. We need to know what we're dealing with. We need to utilize our weaponry and realize our victory. Now, that last statement is the most important statement of it all. We need to realize that the battle and the war has already been won. The battle and the war has already been won. Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection sealed it, finished it, and did everything with it. What we're dealing with is what you might call the cleanup operations. The enemy is still the god of this world. The enemy is still the prince of the air. He's the one who's kind of illustrating those things. But in the end, we already know, because we can see in Scripture, the victory is already ours. The problem is many followers of Jesus don't necessarily believe that or know that. And it's important that we know that also. So look at Ephesians chapter 5. I want to look at verse 8, and then we're going to transition into chapter 6. But look at verse 8. Here's what he says. This is Paul telling us what we once were. For you were once darkness. 
Now, now, I want you to notice the wording here. He says, we were once darkness. It doesn't say that we were once in darkness. What does it say? We were once darkness. That was the, uh, the best description for us is the fact that we were darkness. The, the, the care, everything about us was dark. And here's what needs to be said about that. We as followers of Christ, as we're going to read, are in the light. So if that's the case, and he says, before we came to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we were darkness, that lets us know there's a lot of darkness out there. Because there's not many who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So there is darkness. So you were once darkness, but now you are light in the, in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let your walk, let your journey through this life look like that. And what will it look like? It means you're in the light. You know truth. You're not easily deceived. You're someone who walks as you follow Christ. And then he says, how do you know that you're walking in light? Here it is, verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit is, is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. When I begin to live in light, I'm moving towards the will of God and what's acceptable to him. And then he says this, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, how does that happen? How do we expose that we're in the light and we're trying to expose the darkness? There's several ways. I think there's one way is just living out the Christian life. How, how many of you in the workplace or maybe at school, wherever you are, you live out the Christian life and you get all these people speaking negative against you trying to do what you know is right. And it's almost like they're threatened by that. Have you ever noticed that? That happens. If, if, you ha if it hasn't happened to you, it will happen to you. Because the darkness, listen, does not like the light. How many of you like it when your mom or dad come in the early in the morning and they flip on the lights and say, ah, you know. It's kind of the same type of thing. The darkness doesn't appreciate the light. And he's basically saying we are to live as we expose that. Now, here's where I think it's got, here's the core of what I think is here. When he says to expose the darkness, I think first of all, it has to begin deep within us. That we learn the light, we live in the light, we discover the light, we discover the truth, which is Christ Jesus. He says, I'm the way, the truth, it is Jesus. And we understand it so much that we can expose, we, we, we're not easily deceived, but we can see the darkness. Now, I don't know about you, but one thing I do know about darkness is nothing more than the void of light. It's the void of light. Think about that. That's really what it is. It's nothing in and of itself other than it's a void. So when I'm in the light, which is not a void, is not void, it dispels the darkness. And that's how we need to live our lives. And he's very clear about that. Okay? Now, what are we up against when all that's taking place within us? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Look at it. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He's basically saying, don't go out there and expose the light in your own strength and do all these different things. No, everything that we do to live in the light, to work towards the light, to, to expose the darkness must be done in, to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. And then he says, here's how we'll do this. And this is what we're going to look at in the weeks to come. Put on the full or the whole armor of God that you may would be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. Now think about that. We're in light. We've been called out of darkness. We, the Bible says we were darkness. That described us. 
Now we're light. Now, many of you in this room maybe possibly know about spiritual warfare. How many of you feel like you've lived in the middle of some type of spiritual warfare in your life? Raise your hand. Okay, that's most of us in the room. Now, <laughs> it's not easy to battle, is it? Because there are things working against us. And he's saying the schemes. He's saying those things in which the devil, he'll do everything in his power, bring deception, he, he'll manipulate you, he'll manipulate your mind, he'll manipulate all these different ways he can manipulate, he does. And then he says this, verse 12, he's saying it's not just us out there trying to, to, to make our way through the world. He says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There's something going on behind the scenes, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. The spiritual places. Now, when he says heavenly places, he's not necessarily talking about heaven, the epitome of heaven. He's talking about the spiritual world. Lots going on in the spiritual world. Now, again, as we make our way through the sermon, you're going to be sitting here saying, well, hold on, you're really freaking me out here. I've never heard, <laughs> it sounds like ancient writings of old, and, and it, it really does. But the thing is, it's real, and many of us have lived it. We know it's real, and we find it in Scripture. So, here's the point. Living our lives in the context of the reality of God in the light. Being filled with the Spirit of God also means that we are aware of the enemy and his works of darkness. And we cannot take his work lightly. We can't do that. Now, when studying and dealing with the enemy and his forces, many of us tend to go to dangerous extremes. We either underemphasize the enemy or we overemphasize the enemy. Now, here's what I mean by that. If we underemphasize the enemy, we will become open prey. There will be things that will happen that we're not prepared for. We're not, uh, we, he says, prepare yourself against the schemes of the devil, the strategies of the devil. We, we will just be taken away if we don't try to at least understand what we're up against. So, yeah, there's a point in which we've got to understand it. Adam and Eve in the garden, you remember when they fell in Genesis chapter 3? They underestimated the enemy. They didn't realize he could do what he did. He manipulated them. He turned them inside out. He deceived them. And these were people who met with God every day face to face. So you can't underestimate him. Jesus, however, did not underestimate him. In Matthew chapter 4, it's the Mount of Temptations. It's one-on-one, -on -one, Jesus against the enemy. And the enemy's coming at him with everything he's got. Some of the pictures sound very familiar what we find in the Garden of Eden with Eve and Adam. And all of a sudden, Jesus is there. He didn't underemphasize him. Matter of fact, what he did, if you look at the context of what he did, he began to use Scripture to defeat everything the enemy was bringing forward towards him. And the thing that's really cool about that is basically Jesus was turning his attention, not only his attention, but the enemy's attention back to God. And that's how we deal with it. That's how we begin to make, uh, uh, start to see uh, victory in this. Next, overemphasis of the enemy. That's where some people go. They make too much of him. They blame him for everything. How many of you ever said something along these lines, the devil made me do it? When you were a kid and you knew a little bit about spiritual warfare, how many of you used that with your mom and dad? The devil made me do it. It's his fault. But we do. So, listen, we choose. We choose. We have the power to choose light and darkness. We have the power to choose good and evil. 
It's all that does rest in us. But when we overemphasize him and believe that he can do things that are beyond our control, that's where we've gone too far. Because the Bible says, greater is he that's in me than he who is operating in this world. And that's what you find there. Now, the point is this also. We should never fixate on him. There's a lot of people, I think, that walk around in fear, wondering how's he going to get them next. But listen to what the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 26. God will keep those in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him, whose mind is focused on him. That will be the primarily focus. So we need to know about the enemy, but not become obsessed with the enemy. Now, how do we do this? How do we analyze our enemy? How do we understand what he's up to and what his goals are? Well, a lot of it can come through uh, uh, his character. And the Bible has a lot to say, not only about his character, but also about his name. Did you know back in ancient days that names had a lot to do with a person's character? And it, it, it gave you a revelation of who they were. And that's what we find all through Scripture. Now, the names in the Bible tell us much about the character of a person. The enemy in the Bible has 22 different names that are mentioned in Scripture. I want us to look at 12 of the most commonly used. The first one you'll see on your outline is Satan. And it literally means the adversary, the one who comes against. Most common name used in Scripture. It's used more than 50 times in the Bible. The second name is devil. It literally means the slanderer. It's used more than 30 times in Scripture. And then the third one is very interesting. The name Lucifer. Lucifer. It means the shining one. And that actually was his name before he fell in heaven. How many of you know a little bit about his story? We're going to read about his story in just a little bit. But that was his name before he fell. But how many, has any of you ever named a child or Lucifer? Has anybody ever? <laughs> I don't recommend going there. I mean, the outcome's not good. But anyway, there is that idea of Lucifer. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, before his fall, Lucifer was his name. Now, it says this. How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Son of the morning. Another title is the God of this age. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, whose mind the God of this age has blinded. Speaking of those who are in darkness. And then also the dragon. The dragon. A lot of the talk about the enemy uh, is him being the dragon. You'll find that a lot in the book of Revelation. It says this, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and his angels. And we'll talk more about that verse in just a moment. And then there's the deceiver. We find this also in Revelation chapter 20. The Bible says the devil, the deceiver, was cast into the lake of fire. Now, who does he deceive? He deceives anyone that is under, any, under his influence. Those who are lost, the Bible says literally they're living in deception. Those who are saved. How many of you who are followers of Jesus know that there's been times where you've been deceived? We've been there, haven't we? And he, that's, it, he doesn't reserve it just for the lost. He wants to deceive the saved. Next, the destroyer. Revelation chapter 9 says, and they had, speaking of the, the demons basically, they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit in the Greek. His name is Apollyon, which means destroyer. Another name, Beelzebub. You're like, man, that's <laughs> getting creative with the names. It literally means the prince of demons. Matthew chapter 12, guess who was accused of being him? 
Jesus himself. The, the religious people looked at Jesus and saw he had command over the demons. Now, let me ask you something. Don't you think God's going to have command over the demons? Jesus is going to have command over the demons? And he does. And so the, the religious didn't say that as a tribute to God necessarily. They said, oh, he must be the devil. He has authority over the demons. Next, the tempter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, just how Paul describes him. For this reason, when I could lo no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith. He's, he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He's like, I, I just had to know where you were in your faith. Lest by some means the tempter had tempted you and our labor might be in vain. That everything that I poured into you, all the light, all the truth, all the knowledge of God that was poured into you, that it might just be in vain because the enemy came in. And when it says he had tempted us, he's talking about pulled you away from the faith. Here's another one, the accuser. We find that in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser. Here's another one that's interesting, the angel of light. The angel of light, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Listen to what it says. For such are false prophets, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. That phrase literally means they pretend to be apostles of Christ. And no wonder, no wonder they're so successful at it because Satan himself, the one who's leading them, transforms himself into an angel of light. Now think about that, an angel of light. He presents himself, he has, he's so clever, he's so cunning that he can present himself as though things were true. As things would align with God, as things that would find favor with God. He, he, he has a way of deceiving us in that way. And then, of course, a roaring lion. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says, be self-controlled, be watchful. Better pay attention is basically what he's saying. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Devour, excuse me. And here's what's interesting about a roaring lion. A roaring lion, the roars are intended to strike fear and panic in a person. Did you know when it comes to the follower of Jesus Christ, that same roaring lion has no teeth? Now, he can gum you to death. How many of you felt that before? But there's no bite in him. He has no power over you. But yet, he can still do damage, can't he? There's many people of faith who have strong fears that they shouldn't have because of this, because of what he attempts to do in a person's life. Next, the personality of the enemy. First of all, his intellect. He's very intelligent, very intelligent. Matthew chapter 4. I want you to think about it. It's a mound of temptation we've already talked about. Sandwiched right between Jesus' baptism and his beginning of, of public ministry. That's where you'll find this. Now think about where Jesus has just come from. He's just been baptized. If you know anything about his baptism, it was pretty amazing. The heavens open up. God himself says, this is my son of whom I am well pleased. Now how many of you say that would be a pretty spectacular day if the heavens open up and God says, you're good. <laughs> And that's what he's talking about with Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus leaves there. And the Bible says, we heard in a sermon recently, that, that the Spirit of God took him to a place of temptation. And he's there. He, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the enemy shows up to try to deceive him, to try to tempt him. Now, think about it. 
It's a battle between Jesus, the ultimate of good, and Satan, the ultimate of evil. In this account, we see just how wise and cunning and rational the enemy can be. These verses in Matthew demonstrates his intellect. He comes at him with everything. He takes the truth. He twists it. He takes the truth with the intention to deceive him just like he did with Eve. Whereas Eve fell, Jesus succeeded and had victory in that moment. And then we see the personality of the enemy, his intellect. Number two, his emotions. His emotions. I want you to think about this. Revelation chapter 12. I want you to listen to what it says. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and, of, and the sea. For the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that his time is short. There's going to come a time where he sees it all slipping away. Where he sees that just as it's been predicted, just as God said, it's getting ready to happen. And he begins, part of the tribulation period is the enemy himself pouring his wrath on the earth. And we see he has emotions, and then he has will. He has his will. He has will. It says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, speaking of those who are going into uh, service in the church, it says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. And that they may come to their senses, listen to this, and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do what? His will. The enemy, I want you to think about this, seeks to go out, lay a trap, lay a trap, not just for any other person, but those in ministry, those who are out there trying to proclaim Christ, those who are living in the light, any of us, he's trying to lay the trap that he can get that person in such a way that they're in bondage to him to carry out his will, to wreak havoc on those around us, maybe around your family, maybe around your church, wherever it may be. Next, we see the limitations of the enemy. How many of you are glad he doesn't have any more power than he has? He's got a lot, but he has limitations. I want you to look at some of them. The first one, he is not everywhere at all times. He's not omnipresent is what the theologians would say. In Job chapter 1, it says this, And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. He can't be everywhere at one time, but let me tell you this. Because of the, his cohorts, cohorts the, 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 the demons, his influence is everywhere, but he can't be everywhere. It's kind of interesting when you think about that, isn't it? Next, he is not all-knowing. In Job chapter 1 also, here is, we find an interesting story that's about to happen. Uh, he's not omniscient. You got this conversation between Satan and God, and, 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 and basically there's going to be a challenge put up here. And, and so God calls out Job. Isn't it interesting that God calls Job's name first, and then Satan basically says, hey, if you didn't bless him like you blessed him, he would curse you like anyone else. And God said, okay, let's see. He said, the only thing, you can't take his life. There was a challenge that was put out there. Job came out, you know what he went through. He went through, none of us want to be Job in Scripture, right? Went through everything he went through, came out on the other side, knowing his Redeemer lived, still praising God. The challenge was out there and the enemy fell. Does it remind you of another story where the enemy thought he'd win? You remember the story? 
Of course, it's the weekend of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You see, God used the enemy like a pawn on the chessboard, basically to accomplish what he wanted all along. And the enemy had no idea how it would turn out because he's not all-knowing. He thought he defeated him. But he arose, didn't he? And victory again was once again God's. So he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. Revelation chapter 12, uh, basically, is he's not omnipotent. There was a war between Michael and his angels. Now, Michael was an archangel in Scripture. Again, some of you are getting weirded out about all this, aren't you? What do you mean, archangel? Yeah, there's three archangels mentioned in Scripture. There's Michael, there's Gideon, and there's Lucifer himself. All were considered archangels. And what's interesting is Michael is just an archangel. He, there's nothing more special than him. He's just a, 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 an angel that leads angels, okay? And, and, and here's what happens. There's a war between Michael and his angels and Satan and his angels because he swayed a third of them to go with him. We'll read about that in a moment. Then in verse 8, speaking of Satan, it says, He and his angels fought against those in heaven, but they did not prevail. Michael, just another archangel, was able to prevail over Satan. It wasn't God that had to get involved. Michael himself took care of the matter. How many of you find comfort in that that aren't weirded out about it? <laughs> yeah, it's comforting to know that. There's another angel can be just as powerful as him. Next, limitations of the enemy. He is accountable or he will be accountable. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 25, he says, depart from me, you cursed, this is Jesus talking, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There's a day of reckoning coming. There's a day in which he'll be accountable. And then we come to the beginnings of the enemy. Where did he come from? Where did he come from? Grandchildren have even asked that question. Well, where did the devil come from? Some of you may have asked that question in your own mind. Where, where did all this come about? Well, the story is right here in Ezekiel chapter 28. If you'll turn there, I'll show you where it comes about. And, and, and this may lead to some things that can help you understand more fully where all this came about. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, we begin to see the beginnings of the enemy. But let me give you a history while you turn there. The history and the future of the enemy. First of all, he was in heaven. The Bible says he basically was a worship leader in heaven. And that's the reason we need to watch these guys up here on the stage, okay? We need to keep our eye on them, all right? But he was a worship leader in heaven. As a result of his pride building up with him, he fell to the earth. That's interesting. When you read it, uh, what appears to be the context of it, he was here before we were here. So he fell to the earth. He, he, he took a third of the angels with him. We'll read about that in a moment. He appears in the Garden of Eden. There's this garden God created here on the earth. He, it appears he was already here. He comes into the garden. You know how he comes, disguised as a what? Serpent, okay? He comes in and he tempts Eve, okay? He's part of the fallen earth, okay? That's where he is right now. He's part of the fallen earth. His goal is to bring havoc on creation. The Bible says in John 10 that his goal is to steal and is to kill and to destroy and bring as much destruction as possible. That's where he's coming from. That's what he's attempting to do. His future, according to the book of Revelation, rests in this, that he will be cast into a bottomless pit for about a thousand years, okay? Then he's going to be loosed upon the earth for a short time to deceive the nations once again, and then at the very end, he'll be cast into the lake of fire for eternity. Now, some of you are like, what's that thousand years all about? 
That's another whole sermon, okay? We'll talk about that another time. But I told you there's some strange stuff in the Scriptures. But look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Many times in Scripture, what you'll find is that a prophet will speak, and he will speak in such a way to have a word for the nation. Many times it's Israel. Sometimes he'll speak to foreign nations or nations that are enemies of Israel. But in this case, he's trying to draw a comparison between the king of Tyre. And what he's trying to show is just as Satan, as the king of Tyre fell, it's the same story as how Satan fell. And basically, Satan is king Tyre here. So look at what he says. Verse 11. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, this is Ezekiel talking, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, a, a lamentation is basically pronounce something upon him or, or tell us something upon him. Thus says the Lord God, you were the seal of perfection. Okay, speaking of Lucifer, who was Satan before he fell. Okay, you were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. He's basically saying, this is how special and how beautiful you were. He says, every precious stone was your covering. The sardis, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes, that was the, the, the worship part of him, okay, was prepared for you, listen, this is the key, on the day you were created. Now, right there, does that tell you the difference between the enemy and God himself? God was not created based on Scripture, right? Who was created, however? Lucifer, the enemy. He was created. So he's not going to have the attributes of God. He can't have all those. You were the anointed cherub. That means you were a special angel who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. This is God talking. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. That means you, you had access to the most precious places in eternity and all in the universe. You were perfect in all your ways. From the, Here it is again. From the day you were created to iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within. It's the whole idea that jealousy came up in your heart. You were jealous towards God and the attention that he got because you were the ones leading the worship towards him. He became jealous and you sinned. Pride entered his heart. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing. It's basically at that point you became useless. On the, out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O cover, covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. He was cast out of heaven. Your heart was lifted up. You were proud because of your beauty. Your corrupt, you, you corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. Basically, he's saying you were a defeated foe, and you were marched through that all could see. That's basically the terminology there. He says that they might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries and what you were responsible to do by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst. It devoured you, and I turned you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all who saw you. And all who knew you among all the peoples are astonished at you. You became a whore and shall be no more forever. There's going to come a beginning on the day you were created, and it's going to come to a destructive end. And he's talking about the beginnings and the endings of the enemy. Next, we see the beginnings of demons. Turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. 
Now, just as the enemy, we must be careful not to overemphasize or underemphasize the work in the presence of demons, okay? We would be mistaken to pretend they do not exist. Jesus believed in their existence. How do I know? Because he conversed with them when he walked the face of the earth. There's scripture where he conversed with them. He talked with them. Now, where did they come from? Well, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, we see how they came about, okay? It says, and another sign appeared in heaven, and it said, behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns, or seven diadems on his heads. Now, this is a reference to the enemy. He's the dragon. And his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven. That would be a reference to angels. He drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. He influenced a third of the heavenly host. Think about that. The, the, the millions upon millions of angels that are there that we see, a third of them were influenced by Lucifer and he, they fell to the same fate he did. Okay? He influenced them. He deceived them and they fell. I want you to turn to verse 7 of the same chapter. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought. So he had two, the two-thirds that didn't fall with the one-third of the angels that did, who are now demons. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, here's what's interesting about all this. When it comes to these demonic hosts, the demons, one-third of the angels fell, and they became demons, as where he said but there's three categories of those third demons. I want you to think about it. This is in Scripture. There are those who are free to roam now. They, those free to roam right now. They're the ones that's attempting to manipulate God's Word, uh, keep people in darkness. They're carrying out the bidding of the enemy. They're, they're operating right now. Then there are those who will be freed during the tribulation period. God's going to allow them to come and wreak havoc on the earth. You can read about them in Revelation chapter 9. Then there are those that we could consider so bad that they will never be free to roam. They're mentioned in the book of Jude, the book of Jude. How many of you are freaked out at this point, weirded out? Never knew this. You're probably sitting there thinking, is this a cult? <laughs> no, this is what we find in Scripture. This is, what we, this is nothing else that was added to it. This is what we literally find in the Bible. How about this? The personality of demons. First of all, they had the same characteristics as angels. They have intellect. They knew who Jesus was. Matter of fact, there were those who, who, who got in conversations with Jesus, and, and, and those demons were so paranoid that their day had come for judgment that they were like, they were panicked. You can see it as it's written. They have emotions. In James, we find that they fear and tremble. At, the, at God and uh, even at Jesus, what we find in the Gospels. They have will. They have a will. They choose to follow Satan. We find that in Revelation chapter 12. They have names and can communicate. Jesus basically asked in Luke chapter 8, he asked, what is your name? Speaking to a demon. And he said, legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged Jesus that he would not condemn them to go into the abyss. He's begging, they were begging Jesus. Kind of interesting. Then we have what's called the rankings of demons. 
We find that in Genesis, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Now, I want to ask you a question. When you, when you begin to think about all this stuff, during World War II, the Allies fought against Hitler. Now, I want you to think about this. Did, they literally, did the Allies literally fight Hitler himself physically? No. They fought against the influence of Hitler and those who aligned themselves with Hitler. So literally, they were fighting against Hitler, but not directly. They fought against him. They didn't fight against him, but they fought against his hierarchy. The same thing is happening when it comes to the enemy and his hierarchy of demonic hosts. So who are we fighting? Well, the Bible tells us, okay? They're here to carry out the plans of the enemy. It's some kind of satanic hierarchy. The first you'll find are the principalities, okay? Many people believe that these are assigned to certain nations. Now think about that. How many of you are just wigged out? I mean, you're freaked wigged out. Is that, is that a way of saying that? Freaked out or weirded, weirded out. There you go. How many of you, this stuff's kind of weird? It is kind of weird, isn't it? But man, I tell you, there's some great stuff behind this stuff. But basically, it's that whole idea that there are principalities. We know that Michael was assigned to the nation of Israel. He is the protector of Israel. We read that in scripture. But then there are those who are assigned to others, other things. We find this in Daniel chapter 10. One of the most amazing stories in all the Bible. Some of you know the story. But it's literally this story in which Daniel prayed, but he didn't receive an answer for three weeks, 21 days. And so when the, when the message finally came to him, Gideon was bringing the message. Gideon basically said, I'm sorry I'm late. I got held up by the king of Persia. Okay, now he wasn't talking about a physical king. He was talking about a demonic principality that was over the king of Persia, over the Persian empire. And basically, he literally had to be rescued. He tells this in this story. I had to be rescued by Michael, the archangel. Literally, Michael, the archangel, had to come to set him free so he can continue on his journey to bring the message from God for Daniel's prayer. How many of you think that is just bizarre? It shows you that there's something real that is happening all around us. And, and I'm not here to get you to, to overemphasize this type of stuff, but there are things that are going on beyond us. So we see the rankings. We see the principalities. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, we see the powers to influence nations. We see the rulers of darkness. We see what's called the spiritual host. And at every level, they're coming to do the bidding of the enemy, to deceive the nations, to tempt the individual, to bring darkness where, and keep people in darkness. Next, we see the activities of demons. First of all, they promote disunity. Disunity. Anywhere there's confusion, anytime there's this idea of disunity, you can count on there being some kind of evil influence involved. And that's what we find here. How about this? They spread false doctrine. Matter of fact, when you go and read all, the, you read all the epistles in the New Testament, every one of them talk about those who are spreading a doctrine or a false teaching contrary to the truth of God's word. Where's that all originating from? From the enemy and his influencers, the spread of false doctrine. Next, they hinder spiritual growth. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11 says, the schemes or the wiles of the devil. That means he's strategically and intentionally attempting to carry out his work to create disunity, to keep people in darkness, to keep people from growing in Christ. 
They hindered the prayers of the saints. We see this in Daniel chapter 10, the story I just told you. Next, they can possess. They can possess a person. We see that in Scripture in many places. Next, they can oppress. They can oppress also. You say, what's the difference? Well, here's the way I believe it, and I think the Bible backs this, and it only makes sense that it would be this way. I don't believe true followers of Jesus Christ can be possessed. The reason I believe that is because I believe they can only possess something where there's a void. And for the follower of Jesus Christ, we are what? The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. There's no void in a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay? So I don't believe that that a true follower of Jesus can be possessed. But I, however, do believe we can be oppressed. We can be oppressed. He can carry out a lot of damage. He can still do a lot of damage. He can say, but there's something that's fighting him that's within us too. It's called the Holy Spirit. That battle would be very real. I, I believe there's been times in my life where I've been oppressed. For me, the oppression that comes from the enemy, for me, is discouragement. Anybody deal with discouragement? I, I mean, I do. I, I, there's times, and how many of you sit there and you wonder, how many of you have sat there at times, maybe I'm just different, I don't know, and, and you're sitting there and you're wondering, why am I discouraged? You don't even know why you're discouraged, you just feel discouraged. You, you ever been there? Okay, I'm, I'm the only one. Okay, but anyway, um, but I don't even know where it comes from. And that kind of tells me. A lot of times my discouragement's tied to something, but sometimes it's not tied to anything. I just feel discouraged. I believe that's some of this. Next, they blind the minds of the unsaved. They want to keep people who are in darkness in darkness. Are we seeing that in our world? We are. So here's the application. I've attempted to set up the next four weeks with this Bible study. How many of you are impressed we got through it all? You impressed? I'm impressed. I'm impressed with me, okay? But anyway, but, but here's what I want you to understand. Here's the application. Do you tend to underemphasize or overemphasize the enemy and his cohorts? They are active and working, and you need to be aware. You need to understand what they're up to. And I've given you a Bible study. Look up the verses we didn't get to. I think it would be a great help to you. I want to close with this idea. Romans chapter 8, okay? It goes back to this whole idea that we don't need to fear them. The battle's already been won. When you go to Romans chapter 8, here, that is where you'll find out that there's nothing that can come against us to take us away from the love of God, to not ensure our victory has already been won. The Bible already says it's already there. Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, read that. If you, if, if you took from this sermon, I need to be afraid. I need No, those verses will tell you the victory's already been won, and those things can't overcome us unless we allow them and choose for them to overcome us. Because greater is he that's in us than he that is in the world. That means than he that is operating in this world. And we need to realize that. Well, before I pray, I want to kind of uh, go back on something. We know that there's an election coming up on Tuesday. Uh, from what we understand, 90 million people have already voted. That, that's an astounding number. And there's going to be a lot more voting this Tuesday. And, and I don't know about you, and I think many of us would agree, I'm concerned about our country. I think many of you are. And, and many of you would say, it, don't we say this every time there's an election? I kind of, yeah. <laughs> But there's a, there's a lot going on with this one. And I don't know where you are politically. Matter of fact, it really doesn't matter. 
Because at the end of the day, on Tuesday or whenever we find out who won this election, God is still going to be in charge. God is still in charge. And, and, and that's one thing we need to take note of. But in the meantime, I think it would pay us to just pray for our country right now. I mean, there could be a lot of civil unrest that can come out, out of this, no matter who wins or however things come down. And we just need to pray for our nation. So would you join me right now as we pray? Father, we just come to you right now. And we just thank you that greater is he that's within us is greater than he that's in this world. And Father, whatever it means, there's no election that can mess any of this up. There's plans that you have and purposes that you have already put out there. Your sovereignty is all over this nation. And Father, we just pray right now for whatever comes of this, Lord, that you would just prepare our hearts to, to maybe help and comfort those who, who need comforting. And maybe, Father, for some of us, we need comforting through it all. Lord, I, I've never seen a time where Christians were so up in the air of, 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 of election or something that could be determined. Father, just give us your peace. You're still in control. And Father, help us to rest in that. Father, we do pray for our nation. You know, Lord, that we want so much to, to return to those things that have made us what we were. And yet there are those things that, that need to be dispelled and need to, to fall away when it comes to our history. But Father, there's so much more about just the fact that we won't be a people that, that answer to you. We want to be a nation that understands what the light is. Lord, help us to, as we begin the, that whole process of, uh, of just feeling like we just need to come against the darkness, help us to realize that at the end of it all, it's going to be you calling the shots. It's going to be you bringing the light. It's going to be you doing that. Father, use us in any way that we can as individuals and as a church to continue to bring the light, Father. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.